This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. I can see, our listeners can't see, but I can see that you are on the road traveling for some exciting client matter, I'm sure. But I appreciate you carving out the time to, to join us for this episode of Insecurities. It is always a pleasure and one of those things, you know, we started this uh, in person, Kurt, right, three years ago and then went remote like everybody else. So, hey, what does it matter if a client needs us in in City A or or Coast B? We figure out how to get it done and get get our listeners the content they need. And, you know, an update and maybe an older episode here that we get to reshare this week with the Insecurities Podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to rerun an episode of the podcast that we recorded with Jane Norberg a few years ago. You'll give us a little bit of a refresher on her bio, uh, but Jane is an expert when it comes to all things whistleblower. And we thought, because it's something people are still talking about, that it would make sense to give an, an abridged, a slightly abridged version of that episode for any listeners out there who might have missed it. That's right, Kurt. And and it chafes me a little bit because, you know, we always look back at how our episodes have performed, uh, right? And I think that our accounting episodes really should be, you know, on a serial level, right, uh, of podcast (laughs) listenership. And unfortunately, maybe for my own intentions, that's not what happens. We've seen some topics bubble up that are wildly popular, both when the episodes come out and through time. And, And one of those happens to be whistleblowers. We actually started out three years ago, very early on in episode six with our good friend, Matt Stock, who's a practicing whistleblower attorney who walked us through some of the programs that were enacted and and recently uh, updated. Back when we had that conversation, we spoke with the New York Times bestselling author, Tom Mueller, on his book, Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in the Age of Fraud. Uh, Again, we've spoken with Jane on episode 47, uh, as well as talked about whistleblowing throughout some of our other episodes, right? Every yeah. every year when the enforcement report comes out or the report from the Office of the Whistleblower comes out, we'll usually touch on some of those metrics here. I know you'll share with us in a second, as well as our good friend, George Wilson, who we just heard from uh, last episode. <laughs> we always find a way to chat about whistleblowers. So not only do we see the popularity in our episode content and what our listeners are interested in, I mean, if you look at the headlines from the SEC's press releases, the whistleblower program continues to deliver, you know, regardless of how you may feel about what some call a bounty program. It is active. Uh, Tips continue to come in and awards continue to be given. So it's something that people are consistently interested in, both, uh, you know, for the operations of the program and maybe for themselves. Yeah. And the statistics really just continue to be pretty amazing, if nothing else, as a way to gauge the popularity or maybe the success of the SEC's whistleblower program in particular. You know, one of the things that you'll hear when you listen to our conversation with Jane from just about 18 months ago, not that Mm -hmm. long, we were sort of throwing some of the impressive numbers out there. At the time, the SEC had just crossed the $1 billion mark in terms of the amount of money paid to whistleblowers since the program's inception in in 2012. That number is now over $1.3 billion. So they've Mm -hmm. tacked on another 300 million in just about a year and a half. Uh, Another number that we threw out there at the time, we said at this rate, the SEC is receiving about 5,000 whistleblower tips annually. That number is now 
12,300, or that, that was the number for fiscal 22. Yeah, for last year. Right. The year before that, though, it was also in the 12,000 tips per year range. So if anything, what we see is the popularity of the program accelerating. And, and what I want to do real quick is just read a couple quick sentences from the annual report of the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower, because I think it really drives home this point about how popular the program is. So, quote, in fiscal year 2022, the commission awarded approximately $229 million in and three awards, making fiscal year 2022 the commission's second highest year in terms of dollar amounts and number of awards. Since the beginning of the program, the SEC has paid more than $1.3 billion in 328 awards to individuals for providing information that led to the success of SEC and other agencies' enforcement actions. Enforcement actions brought using information from meritorious whistleblowers have resulted in orders for more than $6.3 billion in total monetary sanctions, including more than $4 billion in disgorgement of ill-gotten gains and interest, of which more than $1.5 billion has been or is scheduled to be returned to harmed investors. So really, by any measure, Chris, this thing is still going gangbusters. You don't have to be an accountant to do the return on investment, if you will, right, of the payments uh, sent out to individual meritorious, one of my favorite SAT words, uh, meritorious <laughs> whistleblowers to, you know, the sanctions and the fines, uh, you know, penalizing those companies alleged of wrongdoing. So to set up our episode again, we're speaking with Jay Norberg, a very brief primer on the SEC whistleblower program itself. If you listen regularly, then you'll probably know it well. Uh, but Jane's practice now uh, really focuses on how to create, consider, and execute on internal reporting and compliance programs at businesses, at firms who maybe are dealing with whistleblower issues. So her insights are very valuable in that regard. Absolutely. And I think earlier I said you were going to tell us a little more about Jane. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Many of our listeners, of course, will know who Jane Norberg is. But for the few of you out there who don't, and I hope you're a new listener. The new Jane, listeners, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Jane is a former chief of the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower. She joined the Whistleblower Office as the deputy chief shortly after the office opened its doors in 2012. And she remained there for almost 10 years before she joined the law firm Arnold and Porter, where she still practices today. And maybe one of the more impressive parts of her bio, Kurt, is that she is a repeat guest here on the Insecurities <laughs> Podcast. Uh, you know, the episode we taped with her back 18 months ago is a great one, and you'll hear it here in a few moments. But also, she dropped by our remote New Year's Eve party mm -hmm. episode we had, uh, as well as offering some whistleblower program thoughts during last year's episode, where we re recapped with some of our friends about the enforcement report that came out there. So without any more ado, uh, here is episode episode 47 featuring Jay Norberg. This is going to be an awesome episode. I know it already. We've had some really good conversations with Jane leading up to recording the episode. Uh, I'm excited because the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower has been incredibly busy in recent months, doing in no small part to the framework that Jane left behind when she left the SEC a few months ago. Uh, so it's going to be exciting to talk about how things are going at the Office of the Whistleblower, to talk about some rules amendments. But really what we want to focus on today is something a little bit 
different than what folks usually will hear about when we talk about whistleblowers. And that's kind of looking at more of the compliance side or the cultural side um, that companies have had to create or adjust to as a result of the whistleblower rules and programs. Jane, of course, has been on the other side uh, and seen where a lot of companies get it wrong from time to time with respect to their internal reporting structures or otherwise. And so I'm just excited to learn from her about uh, how companies can do better, how they ought to be building out their programs. But anyway. As a reminder, the Dodd-Frank Act directed the SEC to create a whistleblower program that rewards individuals who provide the agency with information about possible securities laws violations. The core objective of the whistleblower program is to motivate people who know of securities laws violations to come forward and to tell the SEC. Under the SEC whistleblower program, an individual may be eligible for an award if he or she voluntarily provides the SEC with original information that leads to a successful enforcement action in which sanctions of more than $1 million are ordered. In such a case, the whistleblower may be entitled to receive between 10 and 30% of the total amount collected, although as we'll learn, the SEC may have recently grabbed a little wiggle room for itself in the awards department. Importantly, whistleblowers are not required to report possible misconduct to their employers in order to qualify for an SEC whistleblower award. And that really is going to tie in with some of the things we want to talk about with Jane today. Um, Whistleblowers are, however, required to report to the SEC in order to qualify for certain anti-retaliation protections that are available under Dodd-Frank. Something else we want to talk about, uh, the principal provision there is SEC Rule 21F. Dash 17A. We try not to do the rules too much, but there, there it is. Um, that rule broadly prohibits any person from taking any action to prevent an individual from contacting the SEC directly to report a possible securities law violations. In practice, it has prohibited all kinds of, of conduct where employers try to prevent current or former employees from reaching out to the SEC through things um, like separation agreements or non-disclosure agreements or confidentiality agreements. Uh, To date, the SEC has brought approximately 14 enforcement actions against companies in situations where they think the company was really trying to restrict an employee's ability to to go to the SEC. Uh, There was a really interesting case about a year ago that's still working its way through the courts where um, the SEC actually brought an action against a company that sought to restrict Uh, It's investors from going to the SEC. So not not a current or former employee. Really interesting case to watch. It's called Collector's Coffee. uh, And and maybe we'll hear about that from Jane. But so that broadly is is how the program works. Uh, It has been wildly successful. Uh, And just to give you an indication of how robust or how successful the program is, the Office of the Whistleblower now consistently receives more than 5,000 tips per year. Uh, And I think Jane will tell you that requires an awful lot of work and a lot of long hours uh, for the staff trying to to triage or to get through those tips and and figure out which ones are worth pursuing. Uh, The SEC has received whistleblower tips from every state. It has received whistleblower tips from 123 countries. One year, they received tips from 70 countries in a single year. 
Uh, and the SEC recently hit an incredible milestone. Uh, just this week, the week that we're recording, uh, the SEC announced that it has now awarded more than $1 billion with a B, dollars to whistleblowers. Uh, in fact, to 207 individuals since it issued its first award in 2012. As we said, Chris, the news just keeps on coming. This week, we've seen, uh, I think, a $40 million award um, out of the SEC that was coupled with $70 million in a, in a related agency action. Uh, minutes before we got on with Jane, the yep. SEC announced another $11.5 million award. So, it's very successful. It's very busy. And I think I went longer than 90 seconds, Chris, but that's just that, a tad, but we'll sorry, let it fly. Sorry, it's the best good info. Do. All right. But let's, uh, enough, enough of us. Let's, let's hear from Jane. Uh, Jane, as, as we mentioned up top, we've said a couple times now, uh, for a number of years, you, you were the chief, you were the head of the SEC's whistleblower program. Uh, tell us a little bit about how the program evolved during your time as chief. Yeah, thank you. And, and Kurt, I have to say that was an incredibly good summary. Uh, very thorough. <laughs> and what's interesting is I've, I've been involved with the program since almost the very beginning. Um, I started as a deputy chief in the office. And so I've seen the program grow from a really small, small office where it was just me as the deputy chief. Sean McKessie was the first chief of the office. And we had four four detailees from other parts of the commission. We didn't even have like real like people <laughs> who were dedicated just to our <laughs> office. Like we were allowed to borrow people um, because we just had no idea if the program was going to be successful at the time. I mean, there were certainly high hopes, um, but, but we really didn't know. And so we really had a very lean staff at the beginning um, and definitely borrowed on other resources. And, you know, we really anticipated and kind of and kind of sweated it out until we paid that first award because we knew that that would be the marker that everyone was going to look for as to whether or not the program was successful like when do you pay somebody what are you paying them and how is that going to look and so there was a lot of excitement when that first award got paid back in 2012 just a little over the year a year after the office opened so that's record time when you think about that um and so that was a really exciting time for us. But then, of course, then became, uh-oh, now when are we paying the next one? And, and you know, you started to just, like, live award to award. But by the time I left, right, I mean, we just had it down with, with paying out awards that, that, as you mentioned, they're now flowing out of the SEC on, on what feels like a weekly basis, which is, which yeah. is um, a, a good thing that um, the awards keep coming out. Um, you know, the, the tips I think you mentioned before – you know, started um, promising, but then just really grew year after year after year. And if you look at the SEC's annual report to Congress, um, you can see year after year how the tips have grown, especially during fiscal year 2020, when the pandemic hit and the whole world was sort of forced into lockdown mode. Believe it or not, the SEC just saw this this surge of whistleblower mm. tips come in, um, and that and that was actually really interesting to think about why that why that might have happened. And I think you're going to continue to see this this increase in tips. So then I took over as chief, and one thing that became clear as the program grew was that we were getting in a lot of whistleblower award applications, and in order to keep incentivizing whistleblowers to put in tips, we knew that the awards had to keep getting paid out. 
And um, so in the in the year or two, you know, right before I left the office, that was my whole goal. My whole focus was really revamping and taking a look at how we were doing things internally in order to push out awards quicker. And what you're seeing now is really the the, the fruits of all of the work that um, my team did to, to really revamp the whole system. And it was definitely a collaborative, collective process um, by the Office of the Whistleblower team. Um, and I just, you know, as I mentioned, them hitting this billion dollar mark um, in whistleblower awards is just an, ama- an amazing accomplishment for them. And so Absolutely. happy to see that the awards awards keep coming out on a regular basis. Yeah, one of the major evolutions in the program actually occurred in the past year with what we'll call the amendments uh, to the SEC whistleblower rules. The nuance and, and the detail here is very important, but just to summarize briefly, better defines the terms whistleblower action, monetary sanctions, and some other terms, uh, cemented the SEC's authority to exercise discretion in determining the amount of an award a whistleblower receives, which deviates from that popularized uh, 10% to 30% range of certain cases. Uh, the amendments also create a presumption that for awards under a $5 million ceiling, uh, which actually comprises about 75% of all the awards paid to date, the whistleblower will potentially automatically receive that maximum uh, discretionary award and address some procedural issues with award applications and processing, uh, as well as looking at interpretive guidance uh, related to retaliation and the meaning of the term, quote, independent analysis. And again, we cover some of that on previous episodes in terms of what all of that might mean. But the SEC uh, says the amendments were designed to enhance clarity to whistleblowers and improve the program's efficiency and transparency. But as we've seen this year, uh, new commissions, some new commissioners and some new thoughts. Uh, Recently, Chair Gensler has indicated that the commission may revisit those amendments. And recent uh, articles conclude that the SEC is, quote, stepping back, end quote, from the amendments and that the commission is beginning its, quote, reversal of Trump era changes to the whistleblower program, end quote. So, uh, Jane, it seems like we went uh, up in terms of amendments in detail uh, last year and we may be going down in in detail or some changes there. What do you think about these amendments and, and what's going on in today's commission? So I think you're seeing a very pro-whistleblower chair doing everything Mm. possible to incentivize whistleblowers to report information to the commission. The two amendments that that he referred to in his statement were amendments that were objected to by two of the commissioners um, when they were voted on in December of 2020. So, um, the First Amendment is the amendment that was widely reported as potentially allowing the commission to lower a dollar amount of an award in certain circumstances. And then there was the other amendment that clarified that a separate law enforcement or regulatory action could not qualify for a related action award if there was a separate whistleblower award program that more appropriately applies to that action. Just to give you an example of that second piece, so... There's the SEC whistleblower program, but there are also other federal and state whistleblower programs that exist and that are cropping up, honestly, um, on a fairly regular basis. But one that's existed for a while is the IRS whistleblower program. So let's just say a whistleblower gives information to the SEC, and then they also give the same information to the IRS. And both agencies are able to bring actions um, based on that same information. 
the the thought is is that the whistleblower could get an award from both the SEC and the IRS under their whistleblower programs. And what the SEC said was, well, we're not going to to double pay. We we can't also pay you on a related action award if you can already get that money from the IRS. And so that was the purpose behind that amendment. So I, I'm going to be interested to see what the commission proposes when they do propose uh, uh, amendments to these rules. So what the you know what the chair said was that he was not only instructing staff to review and recommend revisions to the rules, he actually took it a step further and issued a statement that clarified how the agency will review and address the issues now from this moment on until the rules are proposed and open for public comment and then voted upon. So he took the the unusual step of publicly announcing how the SEC was going to interpret the award applications now, even before the rules were proposed, um, you know, which, which in my view, again, kind of sent this very clear message to whistleblowers that this is a new, very pro whistleblower chair. But interestingly, in response to commissioners um, that were appointed by the prior administration and who, who were, who voted um, on the rules as well, issued their own statement that took umbrage with the new procedures that the chair announced, saying that they nullify standing commission rule under the guise of agency procedures. So you can really see the pull from both sides here. And it seems that there is a little internal strife over how this was handled. Mm-hmm. So setting aside the amendments for a second, are there other trends, Jane, or, or developments with the whistleblower program that we should be looking at uh, today and going forward? Yeah, so I, I would point out two or three things that I would note that go along with the same theme of this being a very pro-whistleblower administration. Um, I, I would note that there were some recent orders for whistleblower awards where the commission very liberally interpreted the rules in order to pay a whistleblower, including through the use of um, its exemptive authority under Rule 36A. And this is something that has been used in the past to waive certain procedural requirements that might otherwise have resulted in an award being denied. But it is something to watch for under this administration, because I think you're going to see more liberal interpretations of the rules in order to pay more whistleblowers. And then I would also say to be on the lookout for more whistleblower protection cases under this administration, both in the anti-retaliation context and the Rule 21F17 space for impeding an individual from reporting to the commission that, that Kurt, you had mentioned earlier. This is one area I would anticipate may pick up steam under the new administration. Um, the SEC has not necessarily been as active as they could be in, in this space in the last several years. Um, and, and Kurt, you had mentioned the Supreme Court case of Digital Realty versus Summers that really did reduce the number of cases that the SEC could bring enforcement actions on in the retaliation space. That said, I do think that this administration uh, you know, may be very active in this space with respect to cases that do fit the guidelines, meaning that the individual reported to the SEC before the re- uh, retaliation took place. And so I think that's an, um, another area to watch. And in addition, Kurt, this is something else you alluded to, the, the cases regarding impeding an individual from reporting to the commission, I think that's another area to watch. 
And you can see the expansion of these cases in this area. And two recent cases come to mind. One that you mentioned, Kurt, the um, collector's coffee matter, where district court recently held that whistleblower protection rule extends to shareholder documents. And then another case, a recent case was against a broker dealer where they settled charges regarding language, not in severance agreements, which is what a lot of companies sometimes think about when they're thinking about this language. Mm -hmm. But this was actually language that was in training materials and in a compliance manual. So it, it, it makes it incredibly important that companies do very thorough, very broad look at their internal documents, not just separation agreements, but every document that has terms that they're asking someone to be beholden to, whether it's an employee, a contractor, an investor. Um, I mean, the SEC will certainly be looking at those documents. So it's really important that a company does it first. I think we can agree with following those trends going forward, Jane, but I, I just got to pull back a little bit. You said Kurt was right a lot in that answer, and I, I'm going to have to disagree with that going forward. Oh, come but, on. Uh, I know Kurt did his homework. <laughs> Every once in a while, buddy. Uh, sorry you had to be here for that. Uh, it happens. It's a perfect segue, Jane, actually, because, you know, we do want to talk a little bit more about how companies should be thinking about the SEC's whistleblower rules. Um, I think we did. The, it was important to talk about what's happening at the SEC. Uh, we did that, I think, as, as quickly and as thoroughly as we need to. But I, I really am interested in this point about internal reporting and internal investigations and uh, this sort of intersectionality with the SEC's whistleblower rules. I mean, I remember when the rules first came out, I started immediately getting getting calls uh, from partners in the firm and from clients to say, you know, what are we supposed to do with this? How how do we build a program around this? Are you serious that they don't have to report to us first? And like, what do we do with a whistleblower? Uh, so it's an important conversation to have and one that I don't think people think through or talk about quite enough. Uh, Jane, you've you've been on both sides of this now. Um, at the SEC, you undoubtedly saw cases where companies got it horribly wrong. Uh, their internal reporting systems may have been ineffective, or they they tried to track down or, or openly retaliated against a whistleblower. Uh, maybe they didn't take prudent steps in, in connection with an internal investigation. Uh, now that, that you are in private practice, you get to help clients figure out how to navigate some of these tricky issues in investigations involving whistleblowers. Um, but I want to sort of start at, at the beginning here, um, thinking about internal reporting. Are there things um, that, that companies can do to really encourage internal reports? Are there, are there any hallmarks of an effective internal reporting system? So I would say making sure that internal reporting mechanisms are robust and clear is incredibly important. If whistleblowers are not comfortable and confident in the internal reporting mechanisms, they will not use them. That That's very clear to me. Um, and reports are not necessarily coming in the way that companies might think. I think a lot of companies rely on hotlines to capture a lot of the information, which is a good thing, right? There certainly should be a hotline um, set up in, in companies and, and give whistleblowers, internal whistleblowers, the ability to report anonymously if they choose, if they choose to be anonymous. Um, 
But, you know, a lot of times the reports are coming directly to, to, to middle management. So I guess a couple of things to think about here. Companies should be thinking about how they're promoting and advertising the reporting mechanisms to their employees. So a lot of times things are kind of buried in a whistleblower policy, but if it's not, you know, sort of, sort of put out to employees in, in, in a campaign, right? An internal reporting campaign. Like I always hearken back to the, if you see something, say something campaign, right? That was so brilliant. (laughs) And I still, you know, that was like, it feels like decades ago, right? That that came out, but it's still (laughs) something that you, you repeat, right? Um, Mm -hmm. and, and so having just like an important and employee friendly promoting campaign can, can make a big difference. Um, you know, and with the, with the rise of some very attractive whistleblower incentive programs, both nationally and internationally, the chances of a regulator or law enforcement already having a tip, um, on the same information that a company is reviewing internally is, is, is quite high. Um, so it really puts pressure on making sure internal reporting processes are clear, that there are proper controls in place so that the information gets to the right place to be triaged. Something that I've talked about with with clients over the years is, you know, in addition to just kind of building the right the right framework or systems, are ways to incentivize people uh, who think maybe there's been some violation of the of the law to report internally because, you know, as you know Jane, the co- the company would prefer to know about it first, right? In an ideal world, the whistleblower will come to you before they go to the SEC or another agency. So have you seen incentives that work really well, um, or, or or maybe have you seen <laughs> incentives that just don't work at all uh, for companies that are trying to to build out a program? You know, incentive wise, I think having a a culture of compliance, right, where where being compliant is viewed as as a good thing, reporting wrongdoing internally to a company is something that's viewed as a positive and not a negative is incredibly important. And, and it, it doesn't only mean sort of like talking the talk, right? But, but a company also has to walk the walk. So, um, you can have the best internal reporting campaign, say the, say the most positive things to employees. Um, but one, one misstep by a company, right? Uh, the company say potentially trying to track down a whistleblower who was anonymous or treating a whistleblower, an internal whistleblower in a way that that whistleblower perceives as very negative, right? That will get around the company very quickly. And, and that w- can tank um, the uh, company's ability to receive those internal reports. I, I mean, look, I can think of so many instances when I was the chief of the office of the whistleblower, where whistleblowers told me that they report it to their supervisor but the supervisor didn't handle the report in a manner that the whistleblower found to be satisfactory, which then prompted them to report to the SEC. And this is where I think companies could benefit from, you know, taking a really good look at their internal reporting structure to make sure that all reports, not just those going to the internal hotline, are captured, triaged, and investigated if appropriate. So that's a lot about 
about sort of culture and and how to create uh, or foster an environment where whistleblowers feel, I think you said, comfortable and confident in the reporting structure and in actually, you know, reporting things internally. You know, I've I I'm aware of companies that do some some very specific things to incentivize whistleblowers. I've I've heard about companies actually sort of publicly praising whistleblowers uh, for coming forward with credible information about something that was going wrong in the company or promoting promoting individuals um, who uh, who report misconduct because I think the company's view is we we actually want to encourage and reward that kind of good corporate citizenship. I know uh, Tom Muller told us, and he, he's probably told you too, Jane, but like he thinks it would be great to hire whistleblowers and, and publicly hire whistleblowers to send a message to the employees that, you know, not only do we have a reporting system in place, but we take this seriously and um, we would encourage you to tell us if you think something's going wrong. So I don't know if you have thoughts on those kind of specific things that companies can do uh, or, or how that that fits into the way you think about incentivizing reporting. Yeah, it's actually a really great question. And, you know, I think done right, some of the things that you mentioned it could actually uh, incentivize internal reports and show others within the company that if there is something that they're seeing wrong, um, that that speaking up will actually lead to to good things and not retaliation or or something worse. Mm-hmm. And so, celebrating um, internal reports or someone who has pointed something out and has potentially saved the company money or did an improvement on something. I mean, those are all things that I think could be celebrated in a way um, that, that does encourage internal, internal reporting. Of course, on a case by case basis, right? Because you may have, have someone who reported internally who does not want that public recognition. I mean, Um, maybe they would be okay with their boss, you know, recognizing them privately, but, uh, but, you know, publicly there might be uh, some individuals who, who may not want that. So I, I would, I would think about that on a, on a case by case basis. It's yeah, a great point. We talked a lot about the number of reports that the office of the whistleblower received 5,000 in a given year. I mean, that's, that's more than 13 a day. So it sounds like, uh, Jane, your original, uh, skeleton crew of borrowed resources would probably be a bit overwhelmed, uh, with the current, uh, the current tip load coming in, but that's, it's the same with, with companies, with their internal hotlines. Um, you know, having been a professional who has worked at managing, uh, hotlines and reporting, um, review, I know it's a sticky wicket. Uh, a lot of times you'll either get a lot of reports that, that don't require follow-up or many reports that do require follow-up. How do you see, uh, that reporting structure at a company, uh, utilize a, a, an intelligent triaging system through internal audit, through their legal team? You know, what structures have you seen around how to deal with those reports that's really effective for those companies? It's a great question. And, and you know, a lot of it depends um, on the facts and circumstances of the company. Obviously, different sizes of companies um, might have different, you know, triaging mechanisms. But, you know, one, one thing I did want to point out is, is, you know, I can think of many instances while I was the chief in the office of the whistleblower where whistleblowers told me that they report it directly to their supervisor, but that the supervisor did not handle the report in a manner that the whistleblower found to be satisfactory. 
which then prompted them to report out to the SEC. And, and this is something I just want to point out because I think um, sometimes companies, you know, rely a lot on their hotlines or other sort of very formal reporting mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily where whistleblowers are reporting. I mean, in the um, in the SEC's annual report to Congress in fiscal year 2020, it was noted that of the individuals who received an award from the whistleblower program, which means that their information was specific, timely, and credible enough for the enforcement staff to bring an enforcement action based on that information. So meaning it was good information. 84% of those individuals said that they report it internally to someone at their company, um, either before they report it to the SEC or at the same time. And so that's an incredibly high number. And, and, and so what that means is that 84% of the time, right, in the majority of cases, the company, somebody, somebody at the company had that intelligence, had that information. Um, and, and, you know, potentially it was a direct supervisor of the individual who didn't even recognize, right, that they had, that they just received a tip because a lot of times whistleblowers are just going to talk to their boss. I mean, I think one, one thing we have to think about also is I'm using the word whistleblower, right? Because that's, that's the, the term that's used by the office of the whistleblower. But in reality, it's an employee talking to their boss, right? Putting aside the word whistleblower, which I think people have a very specific connotation in their head of a whistleblower, right? Somebody who's kind of blowing the lid off of some huge, huge issue. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just an employee walking in, telling their boss, hey, I'm looking at these financials and something doesn't quite look right, you know, and it's just a simple conversation, um, or at least the, the supervisor views it as a simple conversation that they're having with an employee, but the, but the, but the employee views it as something much larger than that, but doesn't, you know, kind of, doesn't kind of come in with all like the, the, the red flags and, and, and big formal report. It's just a conversation. And so I think training at the middle management level to ensure that those managers can identify an internal report when they get it. And then more importantly, know what to do with that report. So it's captured by the company and acted on. So I do think that that's a missing piece in at many companies and, and something I thought a lot about based on my conversations with whistleblowers. Um, you know, from the whistleblower's perspective, they told someone at the company, you know, namely their boss about this issue. And if managers are not trained appropriately, this information can be lost and not captured by the company. And look, not, not every tip is going to lead to a large scale internal investigation, but certainly every tip should be triaged to determine what steps are appropriate because it gives the company an incredibly important head start to identify, investigate, and correct an issue if needed before a regulator or law enforcement reaches out. And it also allows a company to determine when to self-report. So having that um, centralized triage mechanism is incredibly important, but also making sure that the information, wherever it's coming in in the company, is getting to that centralized triaging mechanism can sometimes be just as much of a challenge. 
Yeah. And that's similar to how, uh, you know, accountants and internal audit professionals will advise their business, right, is, is tell us more than you might think you need to, right, on a conservative side, is report more things than than you might imagine. You know, Kurt, you and I have talked about a client that I worked with a few years ago who uh, was bragging about being a 10,000 employee uh, outfit that had zero hotline calls in the most <laughs> previous year. I mean, I think you're just the signs with the hotline number had the wrong number printed on them, right? That's not a good uh, uh, status to be in. Just a very compliant organization, no doubt. That's right. They said they only hired the best people. Uh, Apparently, the best people didn't know how to use the hotline. But I think, Jane, you're you're absolutely right that getting the information in the system to be dealt with from the company perspective is a major hurdle to get over. But it's a lot easier to sift through the reports and say, okay, I like to use the phrase, this is the John stole my lunch type complaint that's coming into the hotline. It doesn't need a full-scale investigation. It's not a major issue. It might be more HR than anything else versus, you know, I've been seeing some financial reports that don't look right, and I feel like they're impacting our standing and and what we're representing to investors. That might be the other side of the spectrum. So capturing that information is is the most important part. I agree. You know, Jane, you you dropped one of my favorite statistics uh, in, in responding to Chris's last question, and it's it's this idea or, or this statistic, I guess, that um, you know, eighty four percent of the individuals who received a whistleblower award reported internally first. Uh, and, and that feels really high. You and I have actually kicked this around a little bit before on a DC bar panel a few months ago. Uh, you know, I, I think w- what I see is um, the fact that that 16% of the time, or, or maybe even more, uh, companies aren't managing to attract a tip internally, right? And And that's not a huge number, but I think about it, that's almost one in five whistleblowers who got an SEC award. So like one in five people whose information was credible enough to lead to an enforcement action didn't tell their employer first. Uh, maybe that's just what we should anticipate. But I always think maybe there are things that, that companies can do better to to attract internal reporting. So it's an interesting way to flip that stats and think about it that way, right? Because 84 cent 84% to me is incredibly high for internal reports, given that when the program was first put into, in, into, into place, um, companies were very upset and saying, we want, you know, internal reporting mandated um, before, um, you know, someone can report out to the SEC. And of mm. course, that's not the way um, the rules are drafted. Internal reporting is not mandated. But, you know, to me, 84% is incredibly high for someone to report internally. But I, I, t- I take your point that 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 still means that there's 16% of the time people aren't um, reporting internally. And, and why and why is that? And, you know, one thing I would just add to that is during the pandemic, that number, I think it, it'll be interesting to see the, the reports on this maybe a year from now, hmm. um, because the SEC had this huge surge of tips during the pandemic. And I have seen reports that, um, that, that showed statistics that internal reporting was down, um, at companies. And so Hmm. up at the SEC, down at companies, right? And, and so something flipped, right? Something flipped here. And that is going back to our point about how do you encourage internal reporting? That is something companies need to really think about now with um, the the current workforce, right? So we have people who are starting to go back in person. We have people who are going to be hybrid for the time being. And there are people who are going to be fully remote. 
And honestly, I don't know. I, I think the landscape of work from home and in-person work has changed, honestly, yeah. probably forever, right? So um, anyone who thought that this was like a temporary thing and things would go back to normal, you know, soon, 18 months later, I think we can all say, <laughs> okay, maybe it's not. Yeah. Um, and, and, but because of that, I, again, I would encourage companies to take a look at their internal reporting mechanisms to make sure that people who are sitting at home have a way to report or feel connected to the companies, right? You know, feel connected to their coworkers and their colleagues because I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's some study around the psychology of this, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm sure when people are in an office with somebody and they really like their colleagues and they like their boss and they like the work they're doing, that that helps them get comfortable reporting because they, they want to help their team and they want to help the company. Um, but being remote and not feeling sort of part of the, part of the fold or part of the team, um, or is connected to your company, I think that does impact whether someone reports internally or whether they report out. And so I think really thinking about that dynamic and making sure you're, you're, you're capturing, uh, uh, I guess, capturing tips from people who are remote or hybrid, but also figuring out how to encourage those tips to come in and, and having those people feel comfortable with the reporting mechanisms, even though they haven't been face to face for a year and a half. I think that that is, that is a challenge for companies. Yeah, I, I would agree. So, so we've talked a little bit about building the systems and we've talked a little bit about triaging any tips that come through. Um, so now let's imagine that we are in this this eighty four percent. Okay, so uh, we're we're in a scenario where a company has received a tip. Uh, they believe that it is credible, uh, credible, and warrants further investigation. Walk us through some best practices for companies in developing an investigation plan where the company knows there is a whistleblower. Uh, or, or alternatively, I guess you could tell us uh, some things that a company absolutely should not do when they know there's a whistleblower uh, or, or some common pitfalls. But what, what should folks be thinking about? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the first things I think a company needs to think about is whether to bring an outside counsel or to conduct the internal investigation. Yes, yes, they should. Themselves. They absolutely should. <laughs> <laughs> Knew he was going to say that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and 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 you know, we're 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 joking about it, but it's actually a really important decision, right? Um, because you know, there's always the the cost of things, right? It's obviously a, there's a cost factor, um, and there are times that companies can conduct certain investigations themselves. Um, or just have outside counsel guide them. But in other instances, depending on the allegations, I would say that it becomes incredibly important to bring an outside counsel to show a thorough, independent investigation free from, um, you know, un unintended biases. And, you know, the, the company always needs to view initial steps and really, really, I shouldn't say initial steps, but, but really the whole internal investigation through the lens of a, of a third party, how would the adequacy of the internal response or, or lack thereof be viewed by a regulator or law enforcement if they came in later? Um, you know, another thing I would mention is that if you do have a whistleblower who has identified him or herself, meaning they're not, they're not anonymous, um, making sure that you have regular, um, outreach and touch points with the whistleblower 
is really important to the extent that you possibly can. Acknowledging the fact that someone has put in a tip and, um, and, and keeping them up to date to the extent you can. Again, you, you can't share everything, obviously, with the whistleblower, but, but having that person feel, feel heard and valued is incredibly important. And that will, you know, help the internal investigation and will potentially prevent outreach to regulators by, by that individual. Um, and I would also say that if you do have a whistleblower, making sure that, um, the company, uh, um, especially the managers are very cognizant of retaliation protections. Obviously, retaliation training should happen on a regular basis at companies, right? This shouldn't be something that happens after a whistleblower surfaces. This should be something that companies have um, training on retaliation on a regular basis to management, especially middle management, where a lot of these uh, um, employees are reporting directly to. Um, one thing I would also mention is that if you have an employee who's not performing well, you really need to document it in their annual reviews as it happens. If a company waits to document performance issues until after an employee reports a possible violation, it's going to be seen as a red flag by regulators and the company will need to show that any action taken was not retaliatory. I conferred heavily on every retaliation case that the SEC brought to date. I should say to the day I left the SEC. And, you know, that, that was something that was important, right? I mean, because if the timeline is important, if someone reports internally and you take a look at their performance reviews prior to that internal report and every, every year they're getting really positive ratings and reviews and bonuses, but then they report something and then all of a sudden their performance goes down and they're, they're now the worst employee on the team, right? Something happened, right? Something happened. And that's, and there might be an explanation for that, but it certainly will raise a red flag, um, and potentially get, um, an investigation started, you know, by, by the SEC into those allegations. And then another thing to be cognizant of is that that Exchange Act Rule 21 F17 that we mentioned regarding attempts to impede someone from reporting to the SEC. Um, if if you have an internal whistleblower and that person, you know, does leave the company and there is any kind of severance agreement done, just making sure that the agreement does not contain language that's going to be viewed as as impeding that person from reporting to the commission is incredibly important. Um, again, I conferred on every single 21F17 case brought. I have reviewed hundreds of agreements and the language in those agreements. Um, and, it, and it really is a nuanced thing and just making sure that there's nothing in those agreements to that that could be viewed as someone impeding someone from reporting, especially someone who, you know, right, mm -hmm. has information, <laughs> has information about a possible securities law violation. I mean, that that's also that you have to be even more careful in those instances. And then finally, I would mention, because we're talking about it in the context of an internal investigation, um, Think about the Upjohn warnings, because that was also a case that was brought, right? A 21-17 case brought. The very first one, in fact, was because of language and an Upjohn warning. So you have to think about the language that's being used and make sure it protects the company and all of its privileges, but also doesn't impede reporting to an outside outside regulator. 
And it sounds like the some of the great best practices and, and war stories almost, Jane, from your experience when a, a company knows uh, that they've received an internal report. But to take that flip side, and, and listeners will be happy that I did check Kurt's math at 84%. Uh, you know, the flip side of that is 16%. So great job, Kurt, uh, for exceeding expectations on math on today's podcast. We need an but accountant for that one. <laughs> that's, hey, I, I got to validate myself at All some right. point here. So um, let's say that you're you're working with a company that has found out that there is no return internal report, but they suspect that uh, an individual has reported directly to the SEC. Uh, you know, you've talked a lot about kind of the best practices of how to treat a whistleblower when they report internally. What differences or what nuance is there when a company suspects someone has reported to the SEC without reporting internally first? Well, let me let me start with the premise that the company should always <laughs> assume that the SEC has a tip, um, especially especially if there was an internal report. Because mm-hmm. um, look, look, the, the SEC's program is incredibly strong. It has the three very attractive incentives of confidentiality, anti-retaliation protections, and of course, the um, eye-popping monetary awards, right, to incentivize incentivize reporting, um, and and so. The likelihood that the SEC has information already um, makes it all the more important that the company do a thorough job investigating the allegations and documenting the outcome and once you know and what steps, if any, it took it took in response. Um, this way, if the SEC does begin an investigation and starts asking questions, the company can show there was a thorough, um, independent, and reasonable investigation that was done. Now, you know if. If the company believes that there's a whistleblower and there was no internal report, I mean, the one thing I will say is don't try to find out the identity of a whistleblower, right? That, that's, that's never a good thing. I cannot think of any scenario where that is a good thing for a company to do. Um, in fact, there was a case brought by the SEC against a company, um, where I believe they were charged with retaliation and Rule 21 of 17 violations. And in that instance, um, there was a lot of activity internally around trying to figure out who a whistleblower was. They assumed that the SEC had reached out because of a whistleblower. And they were, you know, questioning employees about whether they were whistleblowers or who do they think the whistleblower is. And, and it just created such... Um, an atmosphere in a company, right? We were talking about before about encouraging internal reporting. This would have the exact opposite effect, right? I mean, because you you would you would live in fear, right, of <laughs> of your boss finding out and and then having to go through this at, at work of you know someone trying to trying to track you down. So that is one thing I will say is that even if you suspect a whistleblower, you receive no internal report, you suspect a whistleblower. You're better off not not knowing, honestly, because for, for the reasons I just mentioned, and also if you don't know who the person is, um, you can't be accused of retaliating against them, right? So to some extent, it, it, it insulates the company from retaliation because you don't, if you don't know who the whistleblower is, then the company, you know, could not have taken steps because they reported a possible securities law violation. So if you look at it that way, I think that helps the company not to know. Thanks for tuning in for this special encore presentation of Insecurities Podcast, episode 47, featuring Jane Norberg of Arnold and Porter. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. 
Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.